Welcome to the Africa Speaking Podcast. The podcast discusses critical issues about the African continent. It is brought to you by Toyota Communications in Nairobi. My name is Kimani Njogu. Okay, um, so today we want to have a conversation about cash crop farming in Kenya specifically, but also in Africa. And if, uh, Prof, you can introduce yourself, um, then we can actually start. XN Iraqi is my name. I am a professor at the University of Nairobi. And I've had a very good encounter with the cash crops since I was a young boy. We so, grew a lot of pyrethrum, mm-hmm. which was a cash crop. And my memories about that are still very fresh. But tell me a little bit about your teaching at the University of Nairobi. In which department are you? I am in the School of Business, which has now changed its name to Faculty of Business and Management Sciences. We teach men and women how to make money honestly. Yes, you teach men and women how to make money honestly. I think that's a brilliant um, way of uh, making sure that uh, there is at least some resource in people's pockets. Now, we want to discuss cash crops in Kenya. And if, if we could start from the history, how did cash crops suddenly get into the continent? Because I'm not sure that we had um, cash crops in the pre-colonial period, or did we? I think to the best of my knowledge, we never used to have cash crops because most so-called farmers were subsistence farmers. So they just grew enough crops to take care of their basic needs. And if they had any extra crops, they did not sell it. They did some buttering. They exchanged with their neighbors. After all, there was no money. So I think cash crop was an invention of Muzungu or the white man when he came to Africa with his capitalist system. It probably has some origins in the plantation economy in the Americas and other colonies where the new settlers grew crops specifically to sell to their mother country and make some money. So I think traditionally there was no cash crop. It is one of the things that we imported from Europe or the Europeans brought to Africa. Yeah, and it is most likely tied to the Industrial Revolution and um, the need for raw materials for the industries and so on. And in the case of Africa, of course, after the Berlin Conference of 1885, I mean, when Africa got partitioned into different zones of interest, uh, the French taking their chunk, the British taking their chunk, the Belgians taking their chunk, the Germans and so on. And looking at Africa as a source of raw materials, cash crops then almost becoming the raw material they required for their industries. So colonialism introduced the plantations and cash crops on the co- How disruptive was it in terms of the social life as well as, you know, agriculture on the continent and Kenya, particularly, especially with you having actually grown in an area uh, that had um, cash crops? The term cash crop is very apt because it shows that the people who grew up those crops wanted money. And every time capitalists have landed anywhere, they have always looked for ways and means of making money. Remember that when colonialists came here, they were not just interested in loading over us or ruling over us or having a bigger empire. There was always an economic incentive. So the Europeans who came to Kenya, specifically the Britons, were interested in making money, not for the British government, but for themselves. And that's how they started growing cash crops like wheat, like frax, like pyrethrum, like cotton to some extent, coffee, and more recently tea. So they grew that in large scale 
to make sure that they benefited from economies of scale. Some of it was processed, but most of it was exported as raw material or in very raw form, so that the industries in the mother country processed it further, added value, and then exported it back to the empire. So how disruptive was it to the local community? It was. In fact, my father in 1920s tells me of how he went to a place, I think it is called Royro. There was a, a plantation, a coffee plantation there called Sokifinaf, currently Tatu City. And he told me how he left his village, went there, and started picking coffee to be paid wages. So it was disruptive because people started moving from point A to B. They started looking for jobs. They left their traditional way of life. And that had an effect on the families. Wives and husbands were separated. Children were also separated. But the most disruptive part of this cash crop happened to have been that uh, people lost land. So we had people losing land so that Muzungu or the British settlers could get land for plantation. That Europeans got the best land in the country. And they started planting those crops, making money out of them. But the indigenous people did not benefit from them except as cheap labor. Cheap labor, they were expected to not only work on the plantations, but also to pay taxes. So there was the question of taxation, uh, which would force them now to work on the plantations. So most of the fertile ground was taken, especially the grounds very close to the railway lines. If you could speak a little bit about the effect of that now, where most of the land has been taken, it's in part, certain parts of a country, what happens to the rest of the country and what happens to food security and so on. Let me confess that when I talk to the men and women who worked in those plantations, including my parents, they tell me that uh, the white man was a very clever man because what he did is to make sure that you did not miss food. So you worked on his plantation, you picked coffee, you picked tea and so on, but he made sure that he gave you some food to eat, the so-called pocho. And they tell me that even if you had Muzungu's debt or a white man's debt, he made sure you got food. So by making sure that you're well fed, he made sure that you're productive, that you worked on the farm. But that had another very interesting effect because we neglected working on our farms and started working on the plantations. So we never developed our own agriculture. So by the time we were getting independence around 1963, we did not have a well-developed agricultural system. The only agricultural system that we knew was a plantation that was run by Muzungu or the white man. And maybe that is why after independence, agriculture did not take off as expected. Worse is that those big farms that were commercially viable or commercially exploitable by the white man were chopped into smaller pieces that could not be exploited mechanically. So you don't need, you cannot grow wheat on one acre of land. You cannot have coffee growing on one acre of land. You need a lot of land to be productive, to, have, to benefit from economies of scale. So the disruption during the colonial era continued up to after independence. Let's uh, look at this um, rather closely. So tea was introduced, coffee was introduced, pyrethrum was introduced, cotton farming was introduced, wheat was introduced and so on, and huge chunks of land uh, were taken. People became laborers on these plantations. And then we have independence. So we have the struggle for independence uh, to get back the land, most of which was in large-scale you know, farming. Then we have independence in 1963, and the structures are not disrupted. The agricultural structures are not disrupted. There is a sense of continuity. What then happens? I mean, what's the effect of this non- 
disruption of agriculture and especially within the context of a growing population and so on? I think to be more, more exact, there was interruption because when we got independence, remember the freedom fighters were agitating for land and the new government made sure they got land. So the former plantations that had house cash crops were subdivided into small farms. I remember in my in my village where I grew up, there was one white settler who had about 32,000 acres. Another one had 6,500 acres. Very big piece of land. So when independence came, those pieces of land were subdivided into five acres, 10 acres, 20 acres, which was too... Yeah, that was, I mean, the subdivision happened during the Mau Mau struggle through the Sonaton plan. I think that was 1954, thereabouts. That, so, was, yeah. that was probably consolidation. Consolidation, uh -huh. But the subdivision happened after independence. Okay. Mm -hmm. So with those small pieces of land now being uneconomical, we did not produce as much as Mozungu. And that's why up to this day, we are still talking about food insecurity. So African smallholder farmers uh, growing cash crops on small pieces of land, say five acres, they need the money. Uh, so how much goes now to the cash crop and how much goes now to, you know, subsistence farming? That is a dilemma because remember that after we got independence, the population went up. So we had more mouths to feed. And the African small-scale farmers are torn between, do I feed my family? Or do I go grow cash crops? And that's why if you go to some place like Kiambu or Moranga, it's not unusual to find that people are abandoning cash crops like coffee and growing food crops because that's what is more urgent. So I think when we got independence, we probably did not plan very well to the future. To realize that the small-scale farmers we are giving small farms will not benefit much from them. And some people have actually argued that we should probably have left some of those large-scale plantations large-scale farms, so that people can go and get employed and get some money. The same way people get employed in towns or urban areas and get money at the end of the month. But that's where we are. Small-scale farmers, subdivided and economical, but we still need to grow food and cash crops. It's a very hard balancing act for the farmers, but we so, need to go beyond that. So from um, an economic uh, uh, point of view, do the small-scale farmers actually need, do they make enough money uh, from the cash crops or would they be better off just farming um, and growing their own food and ensuring that they are food secure uh, without uh, the couple of uh, shillings they get from the cash crop? Or what are your thoughts about this? Up to around 1990, before, before the economy was liberalized, the small-scale farmers were doing very well because the economies of scale that the white man used to use were being used by the small-scale farmers through cooperative unions. They would back their crops, whether it's pyrethrum, whether it is coffee, whether it is tea. They would put it together and bulk, and they would benefit from better prices and economies of scale. But after the liberalization of the economy in 1990, most of those cooperative societies died. I can tell you up to now, 30-40 years later, my parents are still owed some money for the pyrethrum they delivered to the pyrethrum board of Kenya. So you can see now what happens. The cooperatives die. We go to the so-called market economy. And guess what happened? There was a vacuum. And that's where the brokers came in. They started buying cash crops and even food crops like potatoes from farmers at very low prices. And that is why the pride of farmers in this country has continued to deteriorate. That is why when we were educated by cash crops, it's very hard to do that today because the economies of scale that we benefited from cooperatives are not there. Every farmer is on his own and the brokers and the middlemen are having it very good. 
So the brokers, the middle, the middle people right there trying to make money off the farmers. The farmers are sweating it out, but not really benefiting from the cash crops and not benefiting from um, food crops. And I, I would like us to think a little more about the whole question of manufacturing, uh, where somehow there was the opportunity to grow industries for processing some of these cash crops. But how have we done with regard to that? And what's the problem of not developing that part of the industry? That's the saddest part of agriculture or farming in this country. Recently, I went to UK and I was taking some tea in a small restaurant. And uh, the waiter, who happens to have been uh, an English girl, asked me, uh, you want tea? What type of tea do you want? English? She mentioned something else. And I told her, there's nothing like English tea. And she was very surprised because she told me that we have always taken English tea. I told her, English tea that you call English is actually Kenyan tea or Sri Lankan tea or Malawian tea. But the reason why I'm giving you that background is one of the reasons why we did not get industrialized and come up with Anglo industries is because we could not blend our products such that they could be bought globally like English tea or Del Monte pineapples and so on. So because we could not market our products globally, the multinational corporations were able to do that. The small-scale farmers could not do that. And that's why we are stuck in a rut between subsistence, between not growing cash crops, and the, the pride of the farmer is very poor. We had that opportunity, but we did not exploit it. Even today, if you look at our government policy documents, they still talk about value addition. But value addition does not happen. You must always have a market that is going to buy your value-added products. It is also worse in Kenya because we don't like taking our own. If you go to Kiambu, you'll find coffee growing when you look through the window, but you'll be served tea, which is very strange. But if you go to Ethiopia, they probably will take their coffee because they like it. So I think it's a cultural issue, but also the fact that we not hit the iron when it was hot, agriculturally speaking. So we were not able to develop industries to process our agricultural products. And, and of course, I mean, I think you're right that the market for some of these cash crops is not local markets, actually global market. But strangely, the farmers are not consuming the product and they are not also benefiting from the product. And it's true, coffee is overpriced. I mean, we grow a lot of coffee, but uh, it's very, very difficult buying the coffee beans. It's very expensive. It's very true because it's, the value is ended, it becomes more pricey. It becomes more pricey and we cannot afford. So let's move on to two little things. One relates to the pace of um, urbanization. So most of the urban areas grew around the railway line. And again, it's along the railway line that we have the cash crop farming. Because of logistics and transport. Because of logistics and transport. So what is the effect, in your view, of urbanization on the cash crop you know, farming, uh, especially in areas that are close to Nairobi, close to Nakuru, and so forth and so on? I think you are, you are, you are looking at a very important issue in the growth of this country. Because when we started urbanization, and urbanization is still very low in this country, but growing very fast. A lot of people are going to the urban areas. People needed land to settle, to build houses and homes. But remember what you said earlier, that most of these towns grew next to the railways. We have the legacy of the railway line. If you look at the big towns in this country, they're always next to a railway line. Nanyuki, Nyahururu, Zika, Nairobi, Nakuru, Eldoret, Butere, and so on. So what has now happened is, 
because of that urbanization which was centered around the former railway centers or railway stations, people are demanding land. And the land they are buying, unfortunately, happens to be the most productive land. If you go to a place like uh, Nairobi around Westland, you go all the way to Remuru, all that land is being settled. People are buying land and settling there. Yet we should, we should be preserving that land for agricultural purposes. If I were to be asked, we should all settle towards Morongo, towards uh, Kitengera, towards uh, Kamuru, because that land is very dry, and the best way we can utilize it is by settling there. But we are not doing that. We are settling on the most valuable land, most valuable agricultural land, and that is bringing in more food insecurity. I don't know how we can reverse that, but when I visited California some times ago, I noted that they have been doing that. If you go to the southern part of California, like Simivari and so on, you find a lot of settlements. And then water is brought from the northern part to irrigate those places. But most countries have done their best to preserve the most productive agricultural land. In fact, uh, to finish this debate, if you look at the SGR, it is elevated. And uh, I was asking, why do you have to put the railway line up? Until I talked to a Chinese gentleman, he told me, it is not out of beauty. We do this in China because when you elevate a highway or elevate a railway line, you preserve variable agricultural land. I think it's a time in this country we discover the importance of agriculture and the importance of food security, irrespective of whether it is produced by the small-scale farmers or by plantation for owners. Yeah. Um, so, um, finally, we are thinking about the socioeconomic transformation of the continent and the ways in which this could be achieved. And, of course, land is critical to this socioeconomic transformation. In your view, should we, if we were to reimagine large-scale investments in uh, cash crops and also within the context of climate change and, and so on. What would we need to do? I mean, because we, you know, it seems as if we are in a fairly tricky situation. We are experiencing climate change. We are exp experiencing population growth. We need resources, but we cannot get rid of cash crops completely. We, uh, or can we? Is it possible for us to get rid of cash crops? Or can we reconfigure the ways in which we do agriculture, um, and what would it take for us to reconfigure? That, that's a very broad question and needs a lot of rethinking, probably a paradigm shift. And you mentioned something earlier that we probably should have taken more seriously, the Swinaton plan. If I can remember around 1956-57, there was a rad consolidation in central Kenya. So that if you had 10 pieces of land, they were put together and became one piece of land. So it became much easier to exploit or to farm. Maybe we need something like that. We need the government to become bold enough and tell us, can we start consolidating land so that this land becomes more productive and more easier to exploit so that you can use machines and so on. But you are going to go against a culture that believes that land must be subdivided. Land must be inherited. Maybe we need to start thinking like Britons where one time the eldest son inherited all the land and the, other, the others did not inherit, inherit anything so that you stopped land from being subdivided. I don't think that is going to happen. But back to your question, if we have to transform this country economically, we cannot avoid land because that is the center of, that's how we go, we become urbanized. That's where we get food. And I must say, that's also where we are buried. Although with the current changes in culture, we might not think about cemeteries anymore because people want to be cremated. So there are a few things we can do to transform our socioeconomic thinking. One, let's see food security as a national security issue. Because if a country cannot feed itself, it's not worth it to be called a country. Number two, let's not see land culturally. Let's see it as a factor of production. So that if land is not benefiting you, 
you should not feel ashamed of selling it to the people who can exploit it. And number three, we need to see to give to get alternatives to land. Very few people in this country want to be farmers. I've never seen anybody with a business card written farmer. And if you get one, please give me a call. So the alternative, the best alternative would be industrialization. So that we become manufacturers, we become innovative like Korea and other and Singapore and other countries. So that those young men and women growing up in the countryside don't think about just owning a piece of land. They let people who want to be farmers do the farming. Then they can go to manufacturing, they can go to entrepreneurship and other areas. That will not happen today, but it's something we can try. Let me pose the question to you. Do you think that African countries are budgeting enough for agriculture and farming generally? Do you think that we are putting enough money in, in agriculture across the continent? The answer is simply no. We don't put enough money to agriculture. Even if you look at the loans, the amount of credit that is given to agriculture, it is minimal compared with other areas. So we have not taken agriculture with the seriousness it deserves. If you go to the U.S., only about 3% of the population are farmers, but they're able to feed the whole nation. If you look at this country, agriculture probably has, I don't know the percentage, but maybe 25% of the Kenyans derive their livelihood from agriculture, but we still can't feed ourselves. The reason is simple. We don't put enough resources, even labor, to agriculture. The people who are in agriculture, by the way, are there because of circumstances. I've never seen a young man saying my dream is to become a farmer. So I think we need to put more money into that area, whether it's at the national level, at the county level, even at the family level. Because food is a very important part of our life. We cannot escape it. Absolutely. And I really like the, what you said about um, food as a critical you know, security issue uh, uh, because hungry people uh, can be very angry and <laughs> yes. can do all sorts of things because they are, they are angry. That's true. Thank you very much, Professor Iraqi, for really sharing uh, with me your thoughts about cash crop farming in Kenya. And of course, um, you know, we've looked at this from a historical perspective and imagined even the future of farming and its effect on our lives and I hope that you'll be available for additional discussion with me on similar matters in future. I'll be very available in future to discuss such matters that are of importance to the country. It was my pleasure. Thank you. This concludes our episode of this podcast with Professor XN Iraqi of the University of Nairobi. Thank you for listening to the Africa Speaking Podcast. Join us in our next episode. Brought to you by Twaiza Communications. My name is Kimani Njogu. For any comments and views, you can reach us through our website, www.africaspeaking.org. You can also reach us on Facebook, Twaiza Communications, or on our Twitter handle, at TwaizaComs. You can also write to us on email, info at africaspeaking.org